Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame, a place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. I used to get up at like six o'clock and have a cup of coffee, come straight up here and do two or three hours of non judgment <laughs> uh, writing where you just allow everything to just go, don't think about it, just let it all hang out. Hello and welcome to The Music Room, the show where I chat with professional composers, songwriters and musicians to find out who and what inspired them in their formative years. My fabulous guests have, apart from being fabulous, left an item and a piece of advice for others to find in The Music Room. So far, the items that have been left are a tape recorder, the Charlie Parker Omnibook and a microphone. If you're not sure what an Omnibook is, I encourage you to go back and listen to the chat I had with Daisy Cool. Very interesting chat, that. In this episode, you're going to hear from composer, songwriter and musician Charlotte Hatherley, who broke onto the British music scene in the 90s with guitar bands Night Nurse and Ash. But first, we have a music story. This episode's music story comes from Neil Bruce. Hi, Neil. Music was something I knew I wanted to do from a very young age. I started playing in my school guitar group around age five and was also fascinated by synths as a child of the 80s. At every opportunity, I was keen to learn or do something musical. Having said that, I had an extreme musical education. Hmm, Intriguing. On the one hand, I had the most amazing, inspirational, encouraging teachers, and on the other, both an abusive, both physically and mentally, narcissist private teacher and another school music teacher who, rather than encourage and teach, decided to spend their efforts with a couple of naturally gifted musicians and to hell with the rest of us. To quote his words in a school report, Neil will never do anything with music and should give up now. Well, it sounds like that teacher should never have gone into teaching in the first place. Both of these teachers knocked not only my enthusiasm for a subject I loved, but also my confidence in many aspects of life. So many times I nearly gave up, but my enjoyment of tinkering with both my guitar and later a synth kept me going. Around this time I also discovered the joys of recording and live sounds. I persevered, but my formal music education was not very consistent, not taking grades at the relevant times, etc. Luckily, a new teacher came to our school. That's Foley's Grammar and Junior School in Cyprus. And she was amazing. Helen Drury was the one teacher who changed my perspective and also changed the course of my life. She encouraged us all, no matter where we were on our journey, to find the music that excited us and explore. She introduced me to the works of Steve Reich, John Cage, Pierre Schaeffer and Stockhausen. She enabled me to make the connection that music is sound and sound is music. 
and I could create music and art without being a grade 8 pianist. Sadly, when it came to doing A-levels, because I went to a small school, there weren't enough pupils to run the course. Also, only being at grade 5 and without A-level, the chances of getting into university to study music were zero. I ended up switching direction and studied acoustics, the closest thing, I thought, to music, but with access to studios and electronics. Needless to say, my entire degree was 99% maths and about two hours in a studio. It served me well, though as I had an understanding of how all the gear I loved worked from a component level. Music was not going away. I was always playing in bands, writing, experimenting and recording, but I still wanted to learn more. Thankfully, due to the internet and distance learning, I was about to finally get a university education in music thanks to the Open University. Later moving on to study thanks to a scholarship from Steve Vai, orchestration and guitar at Berkeley Online. All these years later, I'm still trying, still striving, and still not giving up. And funnily enough, I ended up as a lecturer. Thank you, Neil, for sharing your music story. There's a point there where Neil mentions about the teachers who are down on him also knocked his confidence in other areas of his life. We have to be so careful, don't we? What we say to other people might feel okay to say, not that a teacher being that negative is acceptable in any way, but you never know what other people are going through. And if you're in a teaching position, you should live by that. You can be whatever you want, kids. (laughs) The link to Neil's website is in the show notes and will go in the next Sam Boutique newsletter. Link is also in the show notes. Charlotte Hatherley's music career began at the age of 15 when she joined British punk band Night Nurse. Two years later, with Ash looking for a guitarist to add to their live sound, she was hired after frontman Tim Wheeler saw her play at a Night Nurse gig. Charlotte's Ash debut was at Belfast Limelight on 10th of August 1997, and the following week the new lineup played the 1997 V Festival in front of 50,000 people. In at the deep end then. Her recording career with the band began later that year on the single A Life Less Ordinary and continued on the album Nuclear Sounds in 1998. If you're ready, let's find out what Charlotte is up to now and let her take us back in time to find out how it all began. Oh, and don't forget, later on she'll be leaving an item and a piece of advice. I wonder what they'll be. Charlotte Hatherley, welcome to the music room. Hi, Gareth. Hello. So, Charlotte, you joined the band at 15 and, and didn't look back. And we'll talk mm. about that more, about those beginnings in a bit. Uh, you've enjoyed success with the band Ash and, you know, I mean, Free All Angels, what an album. And, of course, as a solo artist. But to kick things off, I'm interested in how you go from the big guitar style of 2004's Grey Will Fade to 2018's True Love with all its ethereal, synthy goodness. Well, I suppose... Uh, Grey Wolf Fade was in 2004 and my musical education up to that point how old was I? 24 was really alternative rock so when I joined a band at 15 I was obviously super young and those other members of the band were were probably in their late 20s which at at the time they felt ancient (laughs) (laughs) Um, they felt like sort of adults appropriate adults I was a Britpop kid, but they introduced me to the Pixies, My Buddy Valentine, and Sonic Youth, and like noise, noise rock, art rock. And then I sort of became friendly with Eric Drew Feldman through a friend of mine called Colleen, who was the bass player in the band called The Warm Jets, and she was Canadian, and she ended up marrying Eric. And Eric Drew Feldman was a member of Captain Beefheart's, one of his lineups. He was the bass player. I 
He was the keyboard player in the Pixies and Perubu and had produced Frank Black's solo records. So I sort of became friendly with Eric when they were based in San Francisco. And Eric had said to me, come to San Francisco and we'll, we'll make a record together because I had just written a collection of songs that were very XTC inspired. So like melodic art, punk pop, basically. It was, it was they were just about songs that I'd written out, which I'd collected over the years, which were really born from my night nurse, first band art noise days, colliding with the, the punk pop of Ash, which was like extremely melodic. And so through those two influences, I, I ended up writing Grail Fade, which was, I, I don't know, I, I guess it's a mixture of both really. It's got elements of, of weirdness. And actually one of the songs, Stop, Morris Tepper, plays guitar and who is uh, one of Captain Beefheart's guitar players, um, plays an incredibly wonky guitar solo. And But then Stop is alongside a song like Kim Wilde, which is pure pop inspired, but through this mad filter. And uh, it's interesting to me how those songs sound because I haven't heard it in a while. And actually the, the rights have come back to me now because it's such a such an old record. Oh, wow. um, the publishing's come back to me and I'm actually going to be re-releasing it on vinyl because I don't know if I ever did or if I did. Wow. That was okay. a long time ago. So I've been sort of diving back into it after not hearing it for about 15 years. And um, I just don't know how I wrote those songs. I, I, I certainly couldn't. <laughs> I certainly couldn't write them now. The The arrangements are just insane. But I think it's it's an interesting... Uh, collaboration between, I mean, I wrote those songs, but Eric produced them and actually Rob Ellis, who's a great producer and was at the time best known for being PJ Harvey's drummer. Rob's gone on to produce lots of lots of artists, but at the time he was drumming uh, with PJ Harvey and he came to the studio in, in LA for a couple of days. And, you know, those that was quite huge for me. I was going to say that sounds rich really exciting it was really exciting and i was again you know i was young uh, eric and rob are about 20 years older than me and i think maybe at the time with ash yes we'd had free all angels this big success but i was obviously still maybe viewed myself as someone who was into weird music mm. and i think in eric and rob who I went on to, to make my second record with after I left Ash. I found sponsors, mentors, people who were like, actually, I think what you are writing yeah. is really interesting and really cool. Whereas with, with, within the Ash bubble, I think, I think, you know, they were always supportive, but it was never going to be on an Ash album ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, which was fine. And to be honest, I, I didn't really have any plans to be like a solo artist. I just, I only yeah. did it because Eric said, come to San Francisco and let's do it. You know, I, yeah. I wasn't looking for anyone to put the spotlight on me. It just sort of happened that way. It's a real time capsule, a real snapshot of <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. And and, and a great thing that came out of that was my publisher. So I, I had a publishing deal with EMI and they sent it to Andy Partridge from XTC who loved it. And I went to Swindon <laughs> and sat in Andy's shed in his garden and we co-wrote some songs together which was a really amazing thing to happen to me because I was such a big fan and have always been a fan of of music that is melodically sophisticated and and odd. It's just, for some reason, ticks my boxes. 
and and how that correlates to, to true love I mean just time I think time went by and within that time a lot happened which you know I don't know if we can talk about but I sort of went into session world basically is what happened to me I I, I left Ash and released another solo record that collided with the record industry imploding lost a lot of money because I'd spent a lot of money on this record and when I left Ash that was the end of you know I, I was on a wage with Ash I wasn't paid royalties so when I left the I stopped getting paid and so from 15 to 26 which is when I left Ash I hadn't you know I, I left home at 18 to join Ash so up to that point I just had never had a job I hadn't I'd just been either at school and living off my parents or with Ash earning a sort of a wage as a as a member of the band so then suddenly it was the quite a confronting time of, of thinking oh shit you know streaming was starting to disrupt the record industry and I sort of had a couple of years of trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do and then fell into this this session world and spent over 10 years being a, a touring guitarist for, for various bands and one of those bands was Bat for Lashes and I, I would say the Natasha Khan had a huge influence on opening me up to different sounds and influences and I suppose at that time Drive the film was huge like so the there was a retro 80s synth throwback thing going on that Natasha was really into and I suddenly got much more interested in synth sounds kind of got bored with the guitar felt like I was making college rock albums which <laughs> I, I was I think my third record New, New Worlds I read someone reviewed my third record as college rock and I thought oh dear that's that's I, I felt like I was not doing anything particularly interesting in in solo world so I took a big break it was I think there was five years between my last one and true love and went on tour with Bat for Lashes and came back sort of a bit more interested in writing music in a different way, I suppose. And a, and a big part of that album was a collaboration with Michael Lovett from Nazca Lines, um, who plays in Metronomy. And he was just like a total synth wizard. Um, and we <laughs> wrote, and, and changed my approach to songwriting from something that was very complicated and had several different time signature changes and key signature changes to writing melodic music that wasn't complicated at all actually was maybe like the challenge was to make something quite a bit more stripped down and simple and see how that worked yeah, did so it the, work i don't know <laughs> oh i like it i mean it, it's not just the difference between the guitar and the synths though it's it, like say the rhythms are a lot straighter and yeah um i, I love it, it you know and I, i've got a friend dan who's a synth wizard as well and yeah. uh, we've collaborated <laughs> on stuff and I am a set. He's got this cat synth, and it has one of the nicest bass synth sounds I've ever heard. Ooh. And uh, I don't know if you've combined. There's a kind of a bass line with a synth or what, mm -hmm. but on um, certainly on Night Vision and yeah, uh, what's the other one? Accident of Love. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, Accident of Love. So so much fun. I have to give. Max Tundra a lot of credit for that because that's his mental base programming on that which which I did I, I mean I only did one gig for that album which is ridiculous but um my bass player did actually play that bass oh. line <laughs> wow yeah he was amazing um 
And he's got a medal for it, I, I presume. He's got it. Yeah. <laughs> so he was just showing off. He didn't need to do that. <laughs> but the drumming on that is in, is amazing. That's Alex Thomas drumming on that. Yeah, I kind of yeah. wanted a sort of real, like, modern love David Bowie drum vibe on that. And um, funnily enough, I years and years ago, I because I had a song called Kim Wilde on Grey Wolf yeah. Fade, I became friendly with Kim Wilde and we did a oh, cover version of Kids in America together. And um, I did a guitar solo on it and I sang a verse, I think. It's such a long time ago, I can't really remember. But anyway, she messaged me saying, I've pitched Accident of Love to Banana Rama to cover. <laughs> which, which She was like, it's the perfect song when they had their <laughs> comeback, which would have been amazing, obviously. It didn't happen. But yeah, it is a great tune. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, a funny. I with Bowie drums and insane <laughs> yeah. synth bass. Yeah, exactly. That's a, an interesting mix. Exactly. <laughs> so Michael and Max Dundra, who I collaborated with, also very into. I mean, I think I remember at the time Michael was very much into The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, the Genesis record. And Max Tundra is just kind of like a prog rock synth wizard himself. So even though they are quite straightforward pop songs, I think there's, they're being made by people who are sort of into the wonkier side of things. They're not mm. straight ahead pop songs. I'm not sure I could write straight ahead pop songs. I wouldn't be very good at well, it. Well, it's just not you, is it? It's not, not really, it's not no. not Charlotte Heavily. No. No. <laughs> as much as I've tried. Yeah. It's not, it's no, not I, I mean, it's it's one thing I've always been impressed by is your ability to sound like you, you know. There's yeah. no uh, mistaking someone else for you, you know. You, yeah, you definitely it's... have this certain quality about your music. It's interesting you should say that because as I'm in composing world at the moment, or have been over the last mm. few years, my biggest challenge in that world has been to find my own style i found it a bit more challenging to i've had to think about it a lot more of like yeah. what what is my sound as a composer because i've sort of been in music library world of late mm. i've written uh, or contributed to, to several albums over the years and a lot of that stuff is really just me learning how to make the sounds sound good or writing a scandi noir track for a Scandinavian album or a dramedy. Yeah. And when I listen to those tracks, I don't hear Charlotte, Charlotte sound. I yeah. hear someone who just has taken influence from another composer, you know? Yeah. So at the moment yeah. I'm trying to, I'm kind of like really intrigued by, by people like uh, Christabel who did the White Lotus soundtrack of like, within seconds I can tell it's, it's him. He's got such an amazing sound and I feel like I'm not quite there with my own composing yet. So I think actually bringing the guitar into my composing and out of synth world is a step towards that. Because maybe after after the years of sort of shunning the guitar, mm. I've, I'm sort of coming back to it. I'm coming back around to it, of using it a lot more. Yeah. So it's definitely part of your kind of musical identity, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, it's a tough thing. I think with songwriting, because it's just pure audio, isn't it? You, you mm. chuck your headphones in or you, you put a piece of vinyl on and you're listening. There's no other point of reference. But with soundtrack work, you are effectively telling someone else's story. So you, you've mm. got to really tap into that. Um, yeah. And it's a, I think it's a, a bigger ask, isn't it, to, to try and bring your own sound to that 
and tell the story effectively as well. It's a bit of a bit of a juggling act. Yeah, it's definitely a juggling act. And also like working with temp tracks and like I just pitched for something recently where the producer basically gave me a couple of cues and was like, we really like the temp. Can you just do the temp? And I, I found that very difficult to to do <laughs> without it sounding like a total rip-off. It's like, how the he- how am I going to do this without it Yeah, sounding like an It's a little bit soul-destroying as well, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, make it sound <laughs> as close as you can without getting sued. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's an interesting world because I was sort of interested in soundscapes and I guess the Hans Zimmer world of mm. big synthy drones. And I'm coming away from that actually and, and trying to think of how I can use the guitar and actually use found sounds and bring an organic world into that more synthy world. And those combinations I've, I'm finding a lot more interesting and yeah. with more personality. So I, it, really it's just with the composing is something that I just feel is like such an enormous learning curve that yeah. I imagine I'll be doing it for the next 20 years you know it's it's really a long-term way of thinking and it's it's making me much more aware of my theory as well and I really enjoy it I really enjoy sort of breaking down the harmony and I've got my uh, Schoenberg Fundamentals and Music Composition oh, wow. book and sort of like following those sort of I guess I just enjoy actually after all these years of doing everything myself following some rules <laughs> <laughs> I'm finding it quite liberating. I'm like, all oh, right, it's, this is how you do it, and it actually it it works. Yeah. Like a bit a bit more of a solid grounding in in theory, and finally sort of getting my head around the modes and stuff that I think when I was a teenager and I had guitar lessons, I I started to switch off. Now I'm thinking yeah. I should have paid more attention to that stuff. Talking about being a kid and switching off. Okay, so here we are back in time. Uh, what, Charlotte, are your earliest memories of music? Well, I'm, I'm the youngest of, of three. And my big sister, Abigail, is eight years older than me. And the Beatrice is three years older than me. And they are both musicians. We were all into music. My, my dad is a writer. My mum is an actress. So it, I suppose a fairly bohemian family. And we had a piano, which was our grandma's piano. So really, it was just like, we listened to music a lot. The Beatles we used to sit in the car. Which was, I always think that's where my love for backing vocals and, and harmony actually yeah. comes from, because me and my two sisters would sit in the back and we'd sing all the harmonies with the Beatles. And the Travelling Wilburys was a big one in the car, on the car, car journeys. So I, I was just always sort of exposed to music. And then my big sister, when I was 10, she went to university and she, well, I mean, she was just very good at, at maths and, <laughs> and classical music in a way that I had, had always really struggled with. And actually she went um, into film composition and I was into sort of indie music and then Beatrice was really into pop. So she was like into Annie Lennox and Eurythmics and Kate Bush and like, you know, big sort of um, late 80s pop stuff. And uh, I think I just took all of their influences. So Abigail would send me tapes from uni. She would get me into the Pixies and she was into Stone Roses and she loved the police. And then, you know, being with Beatrice at home, we would just listen to music together. And 
and I, I suppose my, I sort of found my identity by being into the, the perfect timing, really, of, of uh, early 90s, so like grunge and Rage Against the Machine and then Britpop was, but that was my thing. So I was much more indie rock and they were slightly more glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think a big part of my musical education was, was being the youngest of two sisters who were like really, really into music. Yeah. It was an exciting time, actually, wasn't it? The music of the 80s, absolutely wonderful, of course. But there was a period where the dance scene was kind of uh, prevalent and you you couldn't hear a guitar anywhere. (laughs) And so for these grunge bands to explode, and the Stone Roses and people like that, just to explode onto the scene was really refreshing. And Radiohead, you know, Pearl Jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soundgarden. Yeah. All sorts of fantastic sounds well i remember having mtv at school in the whatever room it was called the the recreation room but there was a tv in the corner with mtv on it when and i never had that at home and i wasn't wouldn't have been allowed to have watched vh1 or mtv because it was um seemed to be too uh, Ah, decadent the irony (laughs) but it but it was on at school i know and it was like beavis and butthead and i suppose like being a teenage girl and seeing Evan Dando on the front of the enemy and Melody Maker. And so it's like, you know, I found it really like exciting because before that, you know, I was a Take That fan. I remember E17 played at my school and, I, you know, I was very much in a sort of boy pop world. And then I made like this total switch, discovered David Bowie and, and Evan Dando. And then along comes Britpop where suddenly David Bowie's on the front cover of The Melody Maker with Brett Anderson, and suddenly, who, I think people at school used to think, I used to equate David Bowie with someone like Rod Stewart, like dad music, I was like, you like mm. David Bowie? Like, it wasn't cool. But then Britpop sort of, he was such a big touchstone for those bands, and, and that's collided with me joining my first band, which was kind of saved me actually, because the, the singer, was Israeli and um, she was asking me who my influences were when I, I answered an ad at the back of the enemy and I was like, I really love Blur and Oasis. And she was like, we're not <laughs> Britpop. Like, absolutely disgusted. And I was like, oh, I really love David Bowie though. And she was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose I was just like, it was such an amazing time because there was the whole American rock, Rage Against the Machine and the Lemonheads. And then, then there was Elastica and Blur, like I really loved um, There's No Other Way and Modern Life is Rubbish. I loved that record. And then I loved the first Oasis album when it came out. Mm. Just thought it was amazing. But I was also really, really a huge David Bowie fan. And through Bowie, was very interested in, I guess, all of his influences. Because if you like David Bowie, there's there's a doorway to Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and Berlin and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so I was just like wide open to yeah. receive, basically. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of your musical education, did you receive lessons for instruments? piano lessons which I was not particularly interested in and then my school had like a Saturday morning music club where I started off playing the drums I I really loved playing the drums but um, I was never going to get a drum (laughs) kit it was like before electronic drum kits 
And my sister had left me her guitar when she went to university. So I had taught myself a bit of guitar already. So I got guitar lessons. And so my teacher, a guy called Bob Ash, a really nice guy, and I just took to it like really mm-hmm. well. <laughs> I, don't, I, I just loved playing the guitar and I was good at it. And I think, you know, it's the thing. I think once you find something that you're good at, and someone says, you're really good at this. I think that's that's all you need as a teenager. Because I, I, I don't think I felt like I was, I wasn't really interested in anything but, but music. So so that was that was good, that was an important. Because with piano, I liked it, I was okay at it, but I wasn't great at it. I, I think I had always had that thing of like, if I'm not gonna be the best, then there's absolutely no point <laughs> in doing it. <laughs> I was quite, I was quite ambitious at the time. And in fact, at primary school, I was I was really into football. I was the only girl on the boys' team and captain of the girls' team. And I remember going to secondary school and sort of signing up to the like my first year signing up to football and and the first class realizing, oh my god, actually, actually, I'm not very good at this. And those those of these girls are better than me. And I immediately quit because I just thought I need to be I need to find the thing that I'm really good at. So. So the guitar for me was, it mm. just fit. And and it was a great time to be in London because the music scene was exploding. But I got, yeah, I mean, as far as education goes, I did music A-level, there was only three of us in the class. But by that point, I was already in the band and I was already playing gigs and I didn't find it particularly inspiring to be doing music A-level. I had a good teacher and I remember we went to see the Rite of Spring at the Royal Albert Hall as part of an A-level music trip. And I remember that really blowing my mind, actually. I loved it. I found that really exciting. But that was the only real thing I responded to, I guess. I think in my mind, I was like, well, I'm already in the band, I'm already doing gigs. And I was sort of, you know, struggling to stay awake during the classes. I was also like, at that age, 15 and 16, my parents were separating. My parents actually separated when I was 16. So I I feel like the whole time I was quite off the leash, so to speak. (laughs) And so I was really like, I was rehearsing at this place called The Fortress in Angel. I, I was, I lived in Chiswick, I grew up in Chiswick. So I would travel from Turning Green with my huge guitar um, up to the Barbican and um, rehearse like who knows how many nights a week I can't remember but weekly we'd rehearse and then pretty much every weekend we'd have a gig because there were just so many venues Dublin Castle uh, the Monarch yes. Hope oh. and Anchor just every, every venue the Electric Ballroom Putney yeah. Half Moon and like every venue you could think of we would play the Barflies and I was you know I would use the school library to make up flyers. And I kind of saw school as, you know, I don't know, somewhere to go. I liked school. I liked my teacher. I thought she was cool. She used to come to my gigs. They were, it was very supportive and I had good friends. But I think in my mind, I was You'd already like, checked I just, out kind of thing. I just want to do the, mm. I checked out. I, was, I wanted to do the band thing. And also nobody really, you know, I would skip school. I started to skip school when um, it came to, to my A-levels, because also as I was doing my A-levels, I, I knew I was joining ASH. So there was literally no incentive <laughs> yeah. to to do anything. And the school would send notes 
letters to home saying Charlotte's not really being in and I would intercept them I just didn't care nobody really you know I scraped through my A-levels I got a good mark I was predicted to fail my music A-level I was predicted an E but I, in the end I got a C and I got an unconditional offer to study contemporary music I can't even maybe at Westminster somewhere there was a university so I got an offer purely based on the fact that I had at that time signed a record deal like with the band I was with Night Nurse we signed a deal with Better Records who were at that like a branch of creation and uh, they said yeah sure it doesn't matter if you've got predicted E come and study so again that was another reason I was like wow I've got I've got the band I've got the, an un- unconditional offer I don't really need to to put much effort <laughs> into this <laughs> it was it was a crazy time that I look back on and and you know there was a lot going on in my life at that time and I think the band was really was like the most important thing yeah. that I had it, it meant a lot to me so you know, in a way that you look back on on those years as a teenager, as a lot of people do, as as like the time where you know I, I don't I don't have that love affair with with music that I used to. You know that intensity, it was so like mm. strong, all consuming at the time, and, and I was yeah really like and you know even to the point of there is certain Bowie albums that I struggle to listen to now because I'm not struggle to listen to but I, I I'm just like it is of that mm. time you know and it just doesn't resonate with me in the same way which is quite sad really but I think that's just life especially when your whole career has been the music industry you can't sustain yeah. that um intensity well, can you? With, not, without changing possible. without adapting and um you know because mm. as you've kind of touched upon as you grow older you, you do change as a person so to expect yourself to be still making grey will fade <laughs> 20 years later you know yes exactly it's, it's, yeah exactly it, it shouldn't happen you know you, you you should have moved on you should have evolved yes yeah. Yeah. yes exactly fantastic well Charlotte, I'm asking each guest to leave an item that helped them become who they are today and a piece of advice for anyone wanting mm. to get into the music industry what item would you like to leave in the music room? Yes, I was thinking about this. Oh. I have a book, which I shall put up here. It's called Where the Heart Beats by uh, Kay Larson. Oh. Its tagline is John Cage, Zen Buddhism and the Inner Life of Artists. So it kind of focuses on on John Cage and the, the Cajun revolution. And I found it really helpful because um, in my long and winding <laughs> career, there's so many ups and downs. And I suppose having parents who, like my dad's 80 and he still writes, my mum's 79 and she still goes to auditions and, you know, nine times out of 10 doesn't get them. And so I think for me, I've, I've never had that. No one's ever said to me, you shouldn't do this or you should give up. So I think, and also my mental outlook has always been like, this is something I do like forever, which I think for female artists is, is, is a tricky thing to navigate because of course there's always that pressure of, you know, I, I turned 20 and I thought, oh, I'm so old. I turned 30 and I said, <laughs> I'm so old. And now I'm turned 40 and, and you know, and by this point, I'm much more accepting of it 
And this book has really helped me to look at the the journey of being a musician and see that really it's a long it's a long game. And of all the the moments where I have struggled, not so much struggled, but there's, there's always moments in everyone's career where they think, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, or where you know you you hit a brick wall. And um, I read this book at, at one of those moments. I, I'd had quite a tough couple of years, and um, it really really helped me and changed my perspective. And and a big part of that was um, this approach. The, the Zen Buddhist approach of, of non-judgment. The idea of like, whatever you do is neither good nor bad. And some people really struggle with this this concept, but I found it helpful to, to relieve yourself of the pressure. And I think I, I had a problem with perfectionism. I looked at other musicians and struggled to appreciate or, or, or enjoy friends' success without reflecting it back on my own so-called success. It's kind of got to a place where I'd stopped really enjoying making music because I was so hard at myself and I didn't like what I was doing and everything was... It's, it's funny now that I, I have a baby because I look back on that and I think, oh my God, how self-centred and wonderful to have so much time to be thinking about oh. yourself so much. <laughs> the, the ego of the artist, because now I'm like, God, I'd love to spend that much time and worrying about my own art. Anyway, I read this book and um, and it really helped me to take the judgment out of everything that I was doing and to, to tame the perfectionism, which I, f- I think is, is a curse. Perfectionism is not a good thing to, to have. And to appreciate the process and, and also to see this as something that is not a journey that doesn't end. And it's, it's something that I really wish I had taken on board when I was younger. And... I am. I, I do teach. I teach at the Institute of Contemporary Music and Performance in Kilburn. I teach a sort of a BA um, in film, TV, and and media, which has been amazing. I've really enjoyed teaching. And John Cage was a fantastic teacher, and he had written these ten rules for students and teachers. And I find these really helpful as well. But and I would encourage. It. So, I mean, I put them up on my wall. To, to remind myself. And one of the things is um, nothing is a mistake. So there's no win and no fail. So this is this comes into this idea of non-judgment, which um, he connected with, with Zen Buddhism. And also this idea of do not create and analyze at the same time, ah, which is something that I've really taken yeah. on board as well. So when I'm writing whatever I'm writing, whether it's a solo record or a piece of music library or a pitch for a TV or whatever, the separation of, of the process. So what I used to do would be get up super early. I'm, I'm much more of a morning person. For some people, the productive time is, is late at night. But for me, I used to get up at like six o'clock um, have a cup of coffee and come straight up here and do two or three hours of (laughs) non-judgment writing where you just allow everything to just go don't think about it just let it all hang out and then have a break and then come back to it later and then with a with a different frame of mind maybe a different time of day where you're, you're maybe a bit more alert and not in that sort of foggy creative time analyze it, edit it, and arrange it. And so I try not to do everything at once. Um, and so, so separating those two different processes, I, I have found like immensely helpful. And to 
take the creative time for what it is and just you know, I see that in my students, you know, we, some, sometimes they only have two hours to get something together. And the idea is that they'll have a sketch, essentially is what they have. And then everyone presents it as, oh, it's not very good, or, oh, I hate it, or no, actually, I, I don't have anything to play oh. you because I threw it in the bin. You know, and I also have a friend who, who's been writing a, a solo album for a very long time. and. I asked him how was it go- it was going. He said, "I've deleted it all." You know, we all have these moments of of, of yeah. madness where we listen to what we've done and and we say, "Oh my god, this is just awful." So anyway, I try to hammer home this point of like, even if you do something terrible, it's okay, and to to remove any sort of judgment from that creative time and just allow it to be. And ultimately, who cares? Yeah. I think is the message of, of like it doesn't matter if you've done something terrible or not. It can act as a signpost, um, can't it? There's always something good in it. Exactly. There's always something. Yeah. You can always find something good in what in what you've done. Always. Nothing's ever wasted. Yes, and I actually like that in terms of like composing because I like the way it's broken down into time. Where if I was writing a song, I'd be like, okay, well, I got verse and the chorus down. Or sometimes even a verse would be enough, but with composing, and like I've got, I got twenty seconds of good music today, <laughs> which seems, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't seem like a lot, but actually sometimes that, like a minute worth of music, yes. is, is a lot. And so really looking at music as, I, I suppose breaking everything down into as much smaller chunks of of time, where the time scale is. Is not as fast as as I thought it was when when I was twenty. I wish I'd known that, and and I try to encourage younger musicians or younger students to take a ten year overview, or even to say, you know, it could take you ten, fifteen, twenty years to get where you want to be, and and nobody wants to hear that right. when they're eighteen. <laughs> it's 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 a hard lesson to learn, and but for me personally. I found that very liberating to look at music like that of like it's not it's not a one night stand you know it's this is a long term uh, relationship yeah, yeah. that takes it takes work you know and sometimes you need to go to couples <laughs> therapy and sometimes you've got to walk away and leave it alone for a bit you yes know, it's I, th- I think it's vital to gain some clarity and perspective and to come back you know even if yes. it's overnight yeah, or I saw... leave it a week leave it a month you know, whatever it needs to be. I saw Christian mm. Henson. This is this is the other thing in this age of like YouTube. God, I I can't I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. how it would have changed me if. So I've been following Christian Henson's. He was the part of Spitfire Audio, and he does these incredibly helpful YouTube videos on all sorts of things about you know specifically being a media composer, um, and also Rick Beato. His tutorials have been amazing but um christian henson just did a video which i watched yesterday actually of like how not to give up and one of his pieces of advice was take a hiatus which i think i think you're right sometimes it's it's okay to just step away which i find hard to do at the moment because i've got a 20 month old baby my time is so limited that i actually feel incredibly guilty when i'm not working on something just to sit down for an hour feels an hour to do whatever I want feels quite paralyzing actually because I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> I should be working. 
you know there's there's always some projects going on so yeah I think it's good to sort of bear that in mind of actually sometimes you do need a little break for just for your mental absolutely health. so would that be your piece of advice that you'd like to leave or do you have a, another specific piece of advice there <laughs> <laughs> There were several, several bits of advice on that. I tried to boil it down into one thing. Um, I, I suppose my piece of advice would be, like, essentially, it's to think in a long-term yeah. way and to try very hard not to see. I see it with friends who, during the COVID period, I've had friends who've had to put their albums on hold or a whole marketing plan down the drain or a whole two years of touring completely written off uh, and in the moment it's of course it's so ups it's devastating actually but of course two years go by and and now they can rebook their shows and i think in the moment and i've 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 this has happened to me so many times you're like this is devastating my mm. career's never going to recover mm. and how am i going to get over this and of course you always do and I, it, it it's just that feeling of like short-termism which is a very human condition. It's, it's, it's really hard for us to, to look at the bigger picture. But I think it's just an approach that has helped me in my like late th 30s, essentially, where I had been touring. I'd been a session musician for about 10 years and was approaching 39. And I thought, well, if I'm going to have a baby, I, I better get on with it. And that was the first time I've ever had to think ahead, ever. I've always just been very much in the moment with my I had no plan really and then it forced me to really think about what I wanted to do and and I wanted to be a composer and a, and I wanted to have a family and that meant not touring and then you have to think about okay well how am I going to steer my ship towards what I really want and it's very easy to be distracted in the music industry these days like there's lots of things that I can do but I think sitting down and actually figuring out the plan is incredibly helpful of like okay well this is where I want to get to it's going to take me five six seven eight nine ten years however long and um all these other things like touring takes me away from that um so what can I do that's gonna you know steer my ship and towards that particular star and so I, I found the long term is incredibly helpful to, to think of it in that way so that that would be advice I would have loved to have uh, heard when I was when I was younger and then also I would leave this book because I think it's extremely helpful the, the a Zen Buddhist approach to your artistic process I think would be helpful for everybody Fantastic. those two things your item and your advice going in the music room for others to find along the way it might help them you never know <laughs> you never know but for now charlotte Haverly, thanks so much for joining me in the music room thank you gareth mm -hmm.